0: This is another iRaw podcast.
1: I think the difference here is that if you start thinking about them as having these habitat rights, you're then requiring people to to provide a justification and to, to do that in law. To go up in front of a judge and say, well, we have this reason. And then for someone to say, well, in the interest of the animals, which we've got to consider here, what are you going to say in response to that? So the, the big change is, you know, having to give those reasons and consider the interest of the animal for its own sake in the process of the political decision making. And that's what's missing at the moment. And I think that's a big step towards a more just world for non-human animals.
2: Welcome back to the Animal Turn, everyone. This is season six. We're focusing in on animals and politics. And in today's episode, we're going to try and tackle two concepts. The one is moral imagination and the other is habitat rights. And while I'm not sure that we got as in depth with these concepts as I'd hoped for, I think that the episode gives a really good introduction to these concepts. And I think that they have an interesting relationship with one another. You know, I really do think moral imagination is important for kind of creating and crafting some of these future hopefully future rights that Steve Cook is speaking about, such as habitat rights. It's a really interesting conversation and I hope you enjoy. But before we get into it, a little bit about Steve Cook. He's an associate professor of political theory at the University of Leicester. He works on justice and non human animals and in the ethics of protest and activism. His main interests are in what a just society for human and non-human animals might look like and the ethics of different ways of achieving it. He also recently, very recently, published a book called What Are Animal Rights For? with Bristol University Press. Make sure to go and check that out. All right, but that's it. Enjoy. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the Animal Turn Podcast. I'm looking forward to talking to you today. We've kind of got a double whammy happening and they're both really big concepts, so we'll see how we do. But in general, I was hoping that we could talk a little bit about this idea of habitat rights and also about moral imagination, because I think that both of these are kind of important when thinking about animals and politics, and they're pretty complex, despite sounding relatively easy at the face of it. They're they're really quite uh, complicated and I think really important when thinking about animals and politics. But before we jump into that, uh, perhaps we could learn a little bit about you first and what brought you to thinking about kind of animals and politics in the first place?
1: I guess, I mean, I think it was, I'd been vegetarian and I'd gone vegan and I was, I mean, I I failed my first attempt at a degree. I crashed out of university with a diploma in combined studies and then I was left not really sure what to do. And my wife got me interested in politics and I was, I was unable to work. I'd had an injury. So I signed up for the Open University for a, a distance learning degree. And I just got a passion for politics from studying that. My wife was studying politics and I'd, I'd been along to some open lectures at her university and I just got the bug. And then I thought to myself, I got a job by the time I was thinking about a PhD. I had friends who were doing animal rights activism and I thought to myself, are they doing the right thing? Should I be breaking the law with them? And I wasn't really sure about the answer. So I just finished a, an MA in human rights that I was doing at the same time as I was working. And I, I wrote a PhD proposal over a couple of lunch breaks on the ethics of breaking the law in defense of non-human animals. Sent it in, got accepted, and I haven't looked back since.
2: So when are we, when are we talking about now?
1: So I finished my PhD in 2012.
2: Okay, so you've been working on this kind of intersection of human rights, animal rights, politics and law for for some time. And I love that you just wrote a proposal over a couple of lunch breaks. Like for me, I'm busy writing some postdoc proposals at the moment and it's agonizing.
1: Well, I had a really great tutor, Kimberly Brownlee, who ran a, a module on human rights, on the philosophy of rights. And it was something that was completely new to me, and and there were some some papers in that that got me thinking about the animals question. So I think it, you know it I wasn't just a sort of I just come up with it in, in a couple of lunch breaks. I'd had time to think about it during the course of the MA, and and just sift a few ideas in my head. So,
2: <laughs> and what do you think the significance is of you know philosophy to politics? Because sometimes I sometimes we kind of think of them as being quite separate from one another. But in doing this season, I've realised that philosophers are really really engaged when it comes to kind of political thought and and particularly with animals and politics?
1: Yeah. So I started with the political science route and I, I got gradually more frustrated learning about how, why things were working the way they did. Uh, you know, uh, the political science is all about explaining and predicting and interpreting. And I, I wanted to know the ethical questions, not why is this working the way it does, but how should it work? And that's where the philosophy hits the the politics. What should an ideal world look like? What would a good political institution look like? How should we behave? What what do we owe our fellow citizens? Those kind of questions. And I, I find those much more exciting than, well, what's explaining the way people vote? I mean, that's interesting. But for me, I want to know what I should do and how I should relate to my fellows.
2: And I think it's really important. I think more and more folks should be doing philosophy in in schools and in thinking through, because sometimes the answers, at least in politics, are presented as so black and white, even though we all know that politics and law is really complicated. I think philosophy kind of gives you the space to think through these questions in really interesting interesting ways. And this brings us kind of neatly, I think, to one of the concepts that we're hoping to talk about today, which is moral imagination. In reading your paper called Imagined Utopias, Animals' Rights, or Animals' Rights and the Moral Imagination, in reading this paper, you know, I just, I was immediately struck, I think, by the significance and importance of the arts and humanities to thinking about politics. And that seemed to me to be the main point of of that paper was to say, you know, This kind of social thought is really significant to the political sphere. But I I think when it comes to animals, social thoughts are so often cast aside. It's not really considered when it comes to animals. I think kind of conservation scientists tend to take the foreground. Or am I completely delusional?
1: I mean, I think the the question for me is, is, because I'm interested in what, what the best kind of world would look like. Right. Well, how should we relate to non-human animals? What would that world appear like? And that's a, that's a question of imagination, uh, and, and imagination is really central to all of our moral thinking. Right? When we're thinking about whether we praise someone or whether we blame them for what they've done, we think about what what could they have done differently, and that requires us to exercise our imagination to imagine the different scenarios that could that they could choose between. So this is a question of you know, what's how we think about the possible future. And that's, that's necessary for us to make moral progress. If we want the world to get better, we have to imagine something different. We have to be able to imagine something different. And, you know, that's where I think the arts and humanities can come in. They can, they can help us improve our skills at imagining and they can help us get better at describing those other possible worlds.
2: Yeah, it's, it's, it's literally like opening up different pathways of thought. You know, I think about sci-fi novels, you know, that I read when, when we were kids and you, that seemed completely... You know, the, the idea of spaceships or anything just seemed completely fanciful. But the more you kind of thought about it, the more you opened up those ideas as possibilities, the more kind of thoughts and attention went towards seeing what kind of technologies could be developed. I mean, we literally are living in a world now where artificial intelligence is a thing. You know, like we've, we've created spaces and ideas because we imagined them to some extent.
1: Yeah, I mean, even classics that we love, like, like Star Trek Right, there's imagining a world where everyone has enough. There's no shortages. If you want food, you just press a button and the machine makes whatever you want. What kind of social structures would we have where we have that super abundance of goods and people can just have their needs met? You know, what kind of leisure activities would we do? How do we find meaning in our lives? You know, those kind of questions are all powerful role for the humanities in thinking about political realities for the future.
2: And, and thinking about how many kind of dystopian future imaginings are happening at the moment, right? Like there's a lot of kind of dystopic, I think a lot of us can see how things could go very wrong in a dystopian world, but perhaps there's not as many kind of imagining what a, when everything is worked out and working well, what does that future look like? Because that seems a bit harder to do, actually.
1: Yeah, there have been a few attempts at that in the sort of in environmental and ecological literature, particularly in the sort of feminist literature on those future possible worlds. But I think we like dystopia more. When we're reading this, there's a, there's a thing called the negativity bias, where negative, shocking things attract our attention better than nice things. That's why newspapers lead with horrible stories and why we have more dystopian novels, I think, than we do about utopian novels.
2: So, it makes your job as a philosopher of creating this world that much more difficult, I think. <laughs> like, there's literally a built in bias to not appreciate things that are trying to work and trying to create kind of a moral imagining. So, I think moral imagination, though, is speaking to something slightly different than maybe what we're talking about with Star Wars and stuff here. What do you mean when you say moral imagination?
1: So, I'm thinking about those, partly about those judge- judgments of, of praise and blame. And I'm also thinking about what psychologically motivates us to do the right thing, our sort of moral psychology. So I'm looking to try and harness our moral imagination, uh, our imagination to do the right thing, to have the right attitudes, to be able to picture just states of affairs that include non-human animals alongside humans. And, And it's really difficult for us to do those things. It's a really Great, some great work by Ruth Byrne about how our imagination works and how we make choices and we reason. And there's only a limited number of choices that we think about when we're considering what to do. Right, when we're thinking, what should I do next? What should I do now? How should I behave? What? What? What should I do? We choose between a range of possibilities that we see that are open to us. But we don't have infinite brain power. We don't have infinite time. We don't have all of the information. So we choose from a limited set three or four options and we choose the ones that seem most plausible and possible to us. So, you know, things that seem wildly counterintuitive or, or incredibly different from what we have experienced don't sort of enter into that original, that, that initial set of choices. So I think, that I mean, part of the role of the the philosopher and, and people working in other arts and humanities in in animal studies is to provide people with pictures about the future that they can see as morally good and that seem, you know, plausible, possible, that aren't, you know, they aren't too scary (laughs) and too different and we can make progress towards them gradually. So
2: when you're thinking about, you know, I spoke to Josh not too long ago about the idea of justice and he was, he explained kind of quite well the idea of ideal theory and that you're working with trying to If I've got it correctly, you're working with kind of how can we create this idealized world? Or it's an ideal theory in that if everything went according to plan, this is maybe what it would look like.
1: And then that gives us something to compare our current world to, Mm -hmm. right? We, We think, what should we do to make our world better? Well, we can compare it with this best possible world. And then that reveals some of the flaws with our current world. And it gives us a direction of travel to make progress. So it's
2: literally the steps we could take. If we, for example, to make this a bit more tangible, if we think that animals deserve to, be, deserve to have choices over their own lives and where and how they move and what they do, that would be an ideal theory. Animals have, animals have these abilities and these choices, and we've imagined this as a possibility. Now, what practical steps do we have to take to make that possibility a reality?
1: Yeah. And that and that's where it that's where the realm was the non-ideal theory is. What do I do in the current world to make the future world more like this ideal?
2: Okay, but then it doesn't a challenge come in when we're talking about moral imagination though? Because I think very quickly in trying to be realistic, we maybe make concessions that we don't necessarily want to make, right? So you'll find like animal rights organizations working together with, let's say, big agriculture, because this will help to making the world a little less horrible for animals right now. But doesn't this kind of non-ideal, because it is, it's non-ideal, you're trying to improve the situation for animals that are here right now by, let's say, agreeing to slightly larger crates. But in kind of making these concessions, do you not then just kind of do away with the ideal theory? Like, do you not undermine? Yeah, so
1: this is one of the big problems of in political philosophy, not just to do with animals, non-human animals rather, is what kind what, what kind of steps are permissible, morally permissible in non-ideal circumstances? And this is a problem that John Rawls grapples with in his political philosophy, along with a lot of other people since. But one of the things he says is that, you know, what, what, we, should, what we shouldn't do is make the world better in ways that close off the possibility of reaching the ideal. So you could imagine a world that's much better than it is now. But the changes we've made make it really difficult to reach a much, a a perfectly just world or even a nearly just world. And that might be one of those impermissible steps, right? We can make the world better now. We get, everyone's a little happier. Non-human animals have better lives, but we've normalized very exploitative practice and made it difficult for anyone else to, or for other people to achieve steps towards justice.
2: So, in creating, I suppose, permissible steps or, or trying to create permissible steps, there you, we need to have ideas of what those are or are not. So I kind of view that this is the work that people like you and Angie Pepper and Josh Milburn are kind of doing and that you're creating ideas for the rest of us to kind of think with. You're not saying that this is the way to do it, but is this where moral imagination is? Is your your
1: Yeah, so so part part of it is is Painting the picture of what a just world would look like, what kind of institutions we would have, what kind of laws would be in place, what sort of rights non-human animals should have, what kind of attitudes we ought to have towards them. Part of it's that, and then there's the sort of the stage of what sort of actions are we morally permitted to do to reach that, and then there's a sort of another strand of thinking about the kind of concepts that we use. So the concepts that we use in moral philosophy, you know, and our everyday talk talk about morality, are, are words like rights, like citizenship sovereignty autonomy all of these moral concepts and many of those are not they don't fit very well when we talk about non-human animals people don't when you talk about a person people struggle to think of a non-human animal as a person they struggle to think of them as a rights bearer and part of the work i think that philosophers can do is show that those concepts will also fit which ones can fit well which ones can't fit well how can we include non-human animals in our moral vocabulary? And that can help as well. And, and I mean, I draw, draw from thinking about the idea of moral progress from people like Michelle Moody Adams, Martha um, Nussbaum, Iris Murdoch, who talk about moral progress as a, a coming to appreciate what was already in front of us, right? We, we should be able to perceive how we ought to, to act, but we failed to. You know, people didn't see women as having full personhood and being rights bearers. And they, they should have. And, you know, thanks to the the work of women, men men came round to the idea, right? They started to perceive that differently. And I think that's the same in the case of non-human animals. We can say, look, I know a right's the idea of a right, or the idea of citizenship, that can include more than human, because you can then, you can see those concepts working, it becomes easier to imagine it, and then that makes progress more possible.
2: Well, I mean, I guess because the first thing you'll say is if you're speaking to someone, you know, I think... Animals should have rights, and I think they should be considered persons. Maybe the, one of the first questions someone will say to you is how. And I think if you don't have the any, well, maybe let me put it to you: how? <laughs> like, what kind of tools? What tools are in our toolbox to kind of start thinking about animals in these politically important ways?
1: Well, so very often the the, the strategy that animal rights theorists have taken is to say, well, look, many of the problems that you think apply to human animals and including them in our standard moral terms like rights like citizenship like ownership they apply to all sorts of humans too and we've managed to apply them in human contexts we've 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 managed to ascribe rights to children even though they aren't fully autonomous we've we've managed to make corporations persons in law
2: and there are rivers right aren't there some rivers that are persons now
1: yeah rivers mountains we've managed to give those we found legal ways with trustees and wards and guardians to have people act on their behalf and to give them legal rights, if it can be done for a McDonald's, <laughs> why why can't it be done for a chimpanzee?
2: And do you think that this is just purely a lack of moral imagination of, of putting animals in kind of a significant way in our thinking about politics? I mean, I'm, I'm foreshadowed this and said.
1: I think to an extent, yes. I think I think people just sometimes you talk about talk to them and they are I just haven't thought of it like that before. I think that foregrounding this sort of stuff as well makes people consider it, right? People take a lot, make a lot of effort. They go to great lengths to avoid thinking too hard about our relationship with non-human animals. And if you force them, you make it difficult for them to avoid those, those forms of rationalization or willful ignorance, then it's harder for them to do the wrong thing.
2: Right. Maybe if we bring it back to kind of property rights here. So we've got this idea of Moral imagination that perhaps, if we had more kind of vocabulary or an imagination of a future world where animals were taken more seriously or treated more politically correctly, that if we have that kind of imagination in our minds, we could possibly move towards that world. But maybe we can talk a little bit about kind of habitat rights as a way to maybe frame what we're thinking about. What are habitat rights
1: right, so i I mean I think. My approach to thinking about animal rights is to think about them in terms of the interests that animal have, animals have and the, the, the really strong, important, vital interests. What are they and how could they be protected? And there are, there are many animals for whom having a decent habitat to live in is necessary for them to live any kind of good life. For some, it's necessary for them to live full stop right? Without a specific kind of very niche habitat, they can't survive. So if those animals have a right to life, and I think many of them do, then they probably have a right to the conditions that enable them to live as well. And that might ground something like a habitat, right? So there are are other animals that just can't live good lives. And I use the example of orangutans, right? They range over vast territories. They use their vegetation and the wildlife in their territory in all sorts of ways to enjoy themselves and in different ways depending on the group of orangutans the culture of orangutans and they just can't live as good lives if they don't have that habitat there's, there's plenty of research zookeepers will make use of it they, they make they try and make zoos as much like a, a primate's original habitat as possible because primates don't enjoy living in conditions that are wildly different from their habitat so that, might, that, that creates an interest in the habitat. And I think the, the strength of that interest can ground a right. And that means that you know, we should allow them and not interfere with them when they're in that habitat, right? We should protect it for their sakes. We, should, we have duties not to destroy it. And if we do destroy it or harm it, then they've got rights against us, right? Maybe we owe them compensation or something like that, or we owe them rectification. A a replacement habitat or something.
2: Is this not similar to like? Wouldn't this be kind of conservation? Uh, Isn't this how conservationists operate, and that they're trying to protect habitats because there are certain animals that rely on them.
1: Yes, but they're not. I mean, they're not. They're not trying to protect the habitat necessarily. Always for the sake of the non-human animal. They might be. It might not be for individual animals, right? They might be trying to protect an ecosystem or a species. And the reasons they might have for doing that will differ depending on the kind of conservationist, right? Some of them will say, well, wouldn't it be terrible if my children's children's children never got to see a rhino? Therefore, we should conserve the rhino's habitat. Or wouldn't it be terrible for us if we lost access to this plant that's pretty useful? And it's rarely the case that the consideration's primarily for the sake of individual animals. And that's, I mean, that's the approach that rights theorists take, right? We're looking at individuals, non human animals, as having distinct value, being worthy of concern for their own sakes at an individual level and not just as part of a group or a species or something like that. And the kind of protections that a conservationist might arrange are going to be easy to sacrifice. We find that, I mean, very commonly, right? You have a conservation area and a government wants to just build a road or something, they can do that. And that's, I mean, it's because those animals don't have. Rights, right? It's a clash of, well, human interests versus animal interests. We've got rights, they don't. We can override them. So you don't see conservationists talking about it in terms of the rights that individual creatures have for their own sakes. And that's the difference. I think rights are very powerful. They're the sorts of considerations that trump other things. So if you've got a clash between a right and something else, right, the right tends to win out, it's morally more important. So the classic example is, if you were looking at like a welfare system and you had a choice between meeting people's rights and ensuring people's rights are met and an efficiency, it's better to have an inefficient system that protects people's rights than an efficient one that tramples over their rights. So there's a moral consideration, a right trumping a non-moral consideration, efficiency. So if animals have rights, then they're, they're, those can't be just sacrificed for things like expediency and efficiency and economic benefit.
2: I mean, of course, we kind of see, though, that even though humans have human rights, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you've still got numerous instances of rights existing, but their rights being kind of curtailed in pursuit of exactly what you're talking about, your efficiency. And sometimes legal systems help to even aid in that efficiency. So, I mean, but this isn't the question I wanted to get at. I think that's a you know, I think you you are probably painfully aware, as all the listeners are aware, that that rights exist, but it doesn't just because they exist doesn't mean that they're always enforced well. But it's it's interesting when you're speaking about conservationists there, because I think when you started with saying habitat rights, I initially thought of you know, you were speaking about rights for a habitat, but you're not you're not thinking in this like ecocentric way. You're saying each individual animal has a right to their habitat or to ex-habitat and that right, or they should have a right to their habitat, and that right deserves to be legally and politically
1: protected. Yes. and I mean, they'll, they'll be slightly different from the kind of property rights that we might imagine in a, a human, because I, I tie them to interests. I'm thinking about what does a, an animal need to live a good life and if property turns out to be one of those things, it's a good way of ensuring that it gets to live a good life, then we ought to give it a property right. But you know, non-human animals don't need the kind of property rights that would, you know, for example, uh, the mineral rights underground. Right? That they have no interest in that. If we if we were to give like a human property rights over a piece of land, we might think that they have a right to transfer that so a property. Right involves being able to control who uses the property, gives you a right to transfer it. Stop other people using it, enjoy the use yourself. But a non-human animal doesn't need all of those things to have its animal its its interest met, right? I mean, if if a piece of habitat is necessary for an animal to live any kind of life, it has no interest in a right, a property right to transfer that to someone else. It needs it. It doesn't doesn't need a right to the the all of the 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 stuff under the ground. So it just needs to be able to use. We call user usually fructuary rights, just needs to be able to use the stuff that comes out the top of the ground almost.
2: Unless they're an underground dwelling animal
1: who has a... Yeah, to enjoy the benefits. Yeah, to enjoy the benefits of their property, what it produces, like uh, if it's produ- if it's plants and they produce fruit, then it, 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 it needs a right to enjoy the fruits of the plants.
2: So you can envision a model where, let's say you've got a tract of land it's a random piece of land and a corporation has an interest in owning this land because they want property they want the property because they want to drill and mine on their property so they they want property rights to that land but animals already live on this land and we exist in a world now where animals have habitat rights would the property rights of the corporation and the habitat rights of the animals be contradictory like would they clash with one another or would there be a way
1: so if they did clash i think lawyers should step in and say well look we've got to balance these competing claims and if the rights of the animals are that they can't live without this habitat you can't destroy it right they're not going to be harmed if you dig under the ground and they're surface dwelling creatures and you're going to mine it but you've got to mine it in a way that doesn't damage the habitat And maybe you can go in and you can enjoy their land and get that stuff from underneath. Perhaps you're able to compensate them for it, right? If you're going to damage some of the land, it's not going to be too permanent or something like that. It can be repaired. You've got to pay into a trust, and that trust will be used to maintain the land for the animals after you've gone. And you've got to make it as good as you found it when you leave.
2: Do you not worry about that kind of economic understanding of land use? I mean, and this is just, even when you talk about kind of Oh, what's the common, the common word now? Like offset, offset carbon And Yes, exactly. Like this idea that, you know, let's say folks could just come into a land, use the land, take what they want from the land. But as long as we put some money into a, into a fund, then we're not really hurting. Like I, I see that kind of, that, that kind of maths happening all the time now already, where folks will buy, let's say, an airplane ticket. But as long as you're putting, you know, you're choosing the option where you're saying, I'm doing less carbon emissions on my flight then
1: yeah yeah i mean if that worked i'd be kind of relaxed about it Uh, i mean uh, and i think this comes a little down to the imagination again and and it but it's about how we value things and i think that's one of the big differences between the sort of animal rights view and ecological ethics right and the animal rights view is to say look what kind of beings have interests, or what kind of beings have a, a value that deserves rights protection and that and the answer is usually beings that are sentient that can feel that have a subjective experience of the world that are aware of their own existence they have a stake in their own lives. beings that don't have that subjective experience like plants and ecosystems, don't have rights, right but they might still have a value they might be worthy of some kind of respect of of care and attention but when it came when it comes to respecting you know if you've got a competing claims the rights bearer is going to trump the non-rights bearer, right? We, we ought to save a, a monkey before we save a tree, for example. That would be the claim. But it, it doesn't mean that we just don't give any value. And I, I think that, and, and this, this is a, a question again of, going back to the previous podcast with Josh, of, of justice, right? The kind of things that you do for justice are a part of an enforceable area of morality, if you don't meet your obligations, you don't respect people's rights. Then force can be used to make you. It's it can be the right thing to do. If you're about to kill someone, people can step in and stop you, and that's what the laws there for, and and political authority, and all those sorts of you know issues of of violence and force and coercion. Whereas there's another area of morality that isn't to do with justice, which is still important, like being kind and polite and considerate to your friends we wouldn't want the law to step in and compel you to be considerate to your friends that'd be weird right it'd be a very odd friendship if there was the ministry of friendship looking over your shoulder saying you've been a bad friend this week i'm going to fine you for it so i i think how we relate to the environment is is a lot of that you know is because there are two reasons we ought to care for the environment right one is because it has some value and it's the sort of thing a good person ought to do and and Good people don't go around just trashing beautiful things for fun, right? But the main reason is because lots of sentient beings with rights depend upon it to live good lives. And those aren't just humans. There's loads of creatures that just can't enjoy life without good habitat. And that's why we ought to protect it, primarily.
2: That's exactly right. So, I mean, I think what I was trying to get at with my kind of random idea of this plot of land is the idea that there are a whole host of sentient animals that are reliant on this land, right? So not, not so much an ecocentric view as much as there are, there's a whole host, a whole community that rely on this land in a variety of ways. And tampering with that land or going in with massive machinery might disrupt their way of life and might disrupt the habitats on which they rely in ways we can't necessarily foresee. And I think that that for me is sometimes we go in with our knowledge our existing knowledge and say oh this will be perfectly safe as long as we do x y and z no one's going to get hurt and then we go in and we do it and 10 years later we're like oh we didn't foresee you know this and again now i know i'm entering the dystopian realm and i'm just saying like maybe we should not what would happen if we left alone those habitats right and and is there a scope for realizing that in focusing on the habitat the broader habitats and saying leave it alone, you're actually protecting the rights of many more other individuals. Or do you still think it's always best to start with the individual and scale up?
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I'm. I, I think the individual is what matters most. But I, I agree that we, we often ought to take a precautionary principle. We all we ought to think. Well, what's the worst thing that could happen? <laughs> using our imagination again. If it's you know if we make a terrible mistake and we wipe out a whole load of animals. That's really awful for those animals. What, what, what's the benefit to us, right? It, it's, it's not going to be that we're not going to achieve a benefit sufficient to offset mass rights violation, for example. So I'm, I'm with you on the precautionary principle. I, I don't think we should just wade in all the time. I think we ought to be very careful. But there, you know, there are going to be cases where we can make reasonable predictions. A precautionary principle doesn't mean just, well, even the most wildly implausible thing is enough to stop us acting. You know, we have to have a balance of probabilities. We've got to act reasonably, just as we would in in human cases.
2: Does something? So, does something like habitat rights exist yet? Because you said property rights wouldn't quite work for animals. Conservation law is not really doing as it intends for those inv- individual animals. Does something like habitat rights exist?
1: No, no, it doesn't. I wish it did. I, I would like to see legal bodies with. Enforcement powers, legal powers to say this is a protected area of land and you can't mess with it without considering the interests of animals, without coming to us as the guardians of these creatures and putting your case forward and demonstrating to us that the deal you're proposing is good for the non-human animals that live there.
2: And do you imagine that these habitat rights would follow the animals or stay with the habitat? So obviously many animals are quite migratory. They move between a whole host of environments across nation borders. Would those habitat rights, the same as kind of my right to not be harmed, follows me, it sticks to me. I don't know if that's an actual right. I'm just assuming there's probably a more legal way of saying that, but my right to not be harmed sticks with me. Would an animal's right to habitat stick with them?
1: So so I see the habitat rights as protecting an, in, a, an animal's interest primarily in life and in flourishing. And so, you know, there are animals that don't need a specific habitat. They're, they can exist across a variety of habitats. Right? They're not going to gain the same sort of rights. There are some animals that you just can't move without them dying. Right? They're going to have a habitat right. There are others that need a specific habitat but you could potentially recreate that somewhere else, right? So, you know, maybe there's a a really important good that we can secure. We can only secure it if we build a motorway through some ponds where some rare newts live and we can just build a set of almost identical ponds and the newts will be just as happy 500 meters to the left, right? I think we can meet their property rights, their habitat rights that way, right? They still have the habitat. They still have the good life.
2: Do you not think that we're perhaps creating one of those unfortunate steps though, where we're allowing, you know, the idea that we can just pick up and move communities or individuals based on what we think. And I I hear you. So there's a, a good that might be good for us for whatever reason. And that's what we've been doing all this time is we, we want something or we see something we think it'll be for the betterment of our societies and we, we build things. And sometimes we relocate animals and conservationists relocate animals all the time. But doesn't that neglect sometimes the idea that these animals also have social, cultural worlds? They have connections to that specific place. Even if they could live in, pigeons can live in a variety of cities around the world. But to take a pigeon who lives in New York and just to dump them all of a sudden in San Francisco, that's a different city for that pigeon. That pigeon has undergone something rather traumatic to be just relocated. And this idea that a species just moved would be okay
1: yeah well i think it will depend right there are different kinds of uh, some animals have very strong connections they've got quite sophisticated mental lives they have relationships their territory they, they alter it they use it they shape it in all sorts of ways and they probably matter to them they make it their own so i think those ones would be a, a harder case but there are there, there are going to be many kinds of animals that just probably don't care i think the difference here is that if you start thinking about them as having these habitat rights, you're then requiring people to, to provide a justification and to to do that in law, to go up in front of a judge and say, well, we have this reason, and then for someone to say, well, in the interest of the animals, which we've got to consider here, what are you going to say in response to that? So the the big change is you know, having to give those reasons and consider the interest of the animal for its own sake in the process of the political decision-making. And that's what's missing at the moment. And I think that's a big step towards a more just world for non-human animals. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. So
2: what is existing at the moment is kind of an ecological understanding. Someone has to come in and they have to do an ecological, let's say, survey or assessment to say, how damaging would this intervention be? And it's done at this kind of ecological scale, but perhaps it's not asking the kinds of questions we're talking about here in terms of how do these specific animals rely on the place where development is proposed? How would these specific animals be impacted by being moved or or having something new put into their environment, And this gives different answers than than those that can just be answered by a kind of broad ecological understanding.
1: Yeah, you can't just go, right, I'm going to create the same habitat and we'll just breed some more of those creatures and put them in there. We've preserved the habitat and the ecosystem. It's all, for, it's all fine.
2: Yeah, I could see how this could be a lot more, and I could see how companies would definitely push back against this because I could see it would be a much more cumbersome process. Arguably, it should be a cumbersome and difficult process to intervene in a habitat, but I could see that it would entail observing and watching the habitat, getting ethologists in to see what actually happens and, and, you know, paying attention to what actually goes on and not thinking about environments as just being empty, really. So we've understood now, so kind of you view habitat rights as one of these kind of conceptual, but also legal and political tools that could help and our moral imagining and our moral work of creating a better world, so I read the, the the paper where you wrote a little bit about habitat rights, and you spoke now about you know property, but you also spoke a little bit about how habitats relate to sovereignty. Could you maybe walk me through that a little bit before we get to your quote?
1: Okay, yes, so there's a really interesting argument made by Sue Donaldson and will Kimliker that non-human animals in the wild ought to be considered sovereign with their territories. And I, I, I love their work on this in Zoopolis. They say, look, you know, wild animals have an interest in being able to live out their lives freely, autonomously in their environment, and that, that should ground a, a right to sovereignty, to non-interference. They should be considered almost like states in those habitats. Other states, you know, the the at the level of political communities, should interact with habitats as if they were sovereign communities of, of another another being. And uh, I mean, I have some worries about that position, primarily because I think the idea of sovereignty is more about respecting the idea of autonomy and self-determination. And I think that's a, I don't think it's completely unique to humans. I don't think all humans have it, but I think it's, it's, it's a really important part of what most of us, are. it's our, one of our strongest interests, the ability to choose, to be moral, to, to think about how to live our lives, to make choices, long-term plans, acting, act according to a moral code. And I don't think non, most non-human animals don't have that. And those that do have a very attenuated version of it, they don't have that same interest in self-determination, in deciding how the, pol- the politics of their community work out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what sovereignty is more about. So I don't think that model quite works for governing animal territories. But I do think there are cases where you can imagine a world where you know, animals will be granted habitat rights. They have a property claim over their, their land, and if anyone wants to come in and log it, they have to go to the, the guardian of that animal community and put a case forward, and maybe they have to compensate them and they have to leave it in a good state after they, they've gone. And then some, someone comes along and just violates all those rights, and the state that's supposed to be looking after the legal protections doesn't care, doesn't do what it should do. I think in those circumstances, non-human animals in that habitat might have a right to secede. So you haven't respected our rights, you haven't looked after our, our territory. When we have these rights we can't live, and therefore we ought to be considered a, a sovereign state, right? We, we ought to be taken out of your territory. States have sort of ter- a special territorial right that allows them to sort of take property off people and say all the property in this state belongs to us. All the land is within our state, and we have. Control over it. I think we should take that away from the states that don't look after non-human habitats. Place that control under another body, like a United Nations trustee model. And this is a model that was developed by the United Nations for states that were transitioning, you know, a state that's become independent or has it lacking any governance. And the idea is that eventually it'll become self-determining, but in the meantime, it needs some kind of governance structure. And perhaps the UN can act as a protector or a trustee in the meantime. I don't think there needs to be the meantime for non-human animal territories, right? They don't need to reach that. We're self-determining now because they don't need a political community in the same way in a wild animal habitat. But they do need someone looking out for their interests and protecting them legally with force if necessary.
2: I think it would be an interesting model to, I mean, imagine what it would do to international politics if there were a whole host of kind of animal, quote unquote animal nations where animal interests were represented, and their votes counted the same as kind of other nation states at the international level. You could imagine how swiftly international politics and imaginations would would shift and change because kind of, yeah, the the kind of weight of political power would would be redistributed. You know, of course then if if those guardians are also then humans, you've got a whole host of interesting, possibly behind the door you know, you'd have to really have people that are acting in the interests of animals and not being swayed by corruption or by their own, you know, personal interests. All right. Well, maybe we maybe now would be a good time to talk about your quote briefly.
1: Yeah. So I, I was thinking about property and there's the other side of property that we haven't really talked about, is, and that's us, animals as property. And th- 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 there's a, a quote that I first read in Christine Korsgaard's Tanner lectures on fellow creatures kantian ethics and our duties to animals which then became a really wonderful book fellow creatures our obligations to the other animals but she she starts that lecture with a quote from kant and this this i think is an important it goes back to your talk about value and how we value the environment and i'll just read it out when man first said to the sheep the pelt which you wear was given to you by nature not for your own use but for mine and took it from the sheep to wear it himself he became aware of a prerogative, which he enjoyed over all the animals, and he now no longer regarded them as fellow creatures, but as means and instruments to be used at will for the attainment of whatever ends he pleased. And I think that really gets to the heart also of your question about the economic valuing of the environment, because it, it says that, you know, if, if we think of non-human animals as property, then it changes the way we regard them morally. And so I, I used to think that it was, you know, it, ownership of non-human animals was compatible with respecting animal rights in some way. that Their interests could be protected whilst they were being owned. And I'm, I'm much less sure of that now, because I think that attitude that's implicit in that sort of quote matters there. Right? He, when he he sees that pelt of the animal as, as something he can use, it doesn't belong to the animal. It belongs to a human. It's, they're just now a thing to be used. And it's it's a shift of the way we regard. Others and I, I think one of the the problems I think about how we imagine animal rights relies upon or has something missing from it in a lot of animal rights scholarship. We tend to think of respect as being core to the idea of rights. So when we think about respecting non human animals, rights theorists tend to say, Well, respecting non human animals is about acknowledging the fact that they're valuable for their own sake and they have interests that matter to them and we just need to protect those interests. And the more I've thought about it, the more I've looked at the concept of respect, I think that's not quite how we respect one another as humans. It isn't quite, there's something missing. So when we think about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, there's also a sort of, almost an idea of reverence, some kind of valuing of something special about humans. Animal rights theorists tend to say, no, that that view is mistaken. There's nothing special about humans, just as there's nothing special about animals. We're all the same, and I think maybe there is something special about humans, and there's something special about animals, other animals, and the concept of res- respect that we have for them, you know, ought to ought to have some of that that sense of wonder, respect, dignity, something. It's really hard to describe in the language of analytic political philosophy. <laughs> something magical, something mystical almost. That to have that attitudes towards non-human animals as individuals, not necessarily at the species or community level, but as individuals, and say that individual chicken, that individual cow, there's something, yeah, there's something marvellous, there's something wonderful wonderful about them. And I think that quote from Kant reveals that once you stop, when you strip out that viewing something as as wondrous, it makes it easier to imagine them as just things, resources. And I guess it's the same for the environment to some degree. So I think it, it, we can't just talk in terms of morality as rights and justice, but I think character and attitudes and that those kind of things matter. How how we regard someone is a, you know, it's different if you pay your taxes because you're frightened of being sent to jail. It's different from you pay your taxes because you... Want other people who haven't got as much as you to live good lives, right? In both cases, we're respecting other people's rights, but they've got a very different moral quality to them.
2: I agree, and I like that framing of moral quality because the lens you wear when you do something, as you say, you can have exactly the same action being done, but the lens that you wear when doing that action changes the kind of significance, I think, of the action in some in some way and also not only the significance of the action but possibly even the significance. Of the action for those involved. I know that I've shared this the story on the podcast before, but when I went vegan myself, I didn't really see animals as animals. It was it was an odd kind of thing. Like I didn't want to be part of this big machine that's violent and hurts animals. So I kind of I was like, I'm stepping away. I'm not going to participate. And I remember very clearly a distinct moment walking past a fish in a in a tank in Korea and realizing, wow, this is that fish's whole. Like this is their life, this is their world, this is their experience. And and it still gets me now because it's a very different view. I think in that moment I started to see the, the complexity of who was involved in this kind of, you know, it wasn't about their environment or anything. It was that fish, that particular fish experiencing really just unbelievable violence and hurt and pain that was going to end awfully for them and kind of seeing that versus comparing myself to a year ago where I would have just walked past and all I would have seen was a fish and that's a very different kind of seeing really
1: yeah it's just a good acknowledgement that this is a being with an individual subjective life that matters for its own sake and and I think that's one of the things that's that's got a real strength of the rights approach. Right. The rights approach, it's not everything, but it is really focused on individual beings that matter for their own sakes. And I think that's why I'm a, a rights and animal rights theorist and not a an ecological theorist or an eco-ethicist.
2: Yeah. I, I know that there's a lot of folks that are uncomfortable with, with the rights framework. I still need to I, I don't I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's primarily because of the kind of history of colonisation and, you know, Western rights, but I'm not well-versed enough to put forward this critique.
1: Well, I think one of the reasons is also comes from the sort of, the, the complaint from Karl Marx and that sort of Marxist approach to say, rights are about preserving property relationships. They're about preserving dominant power relationships. And I think there's a difference between what they, what they ought to be for and how they're used. I think marking out what really is the minimal moral standard that we ought to live according to is what rights are for, right? This is the minimum. In order for anyone to live a decent life, they have to have their their, their life protected. They have to be able to have shelter and food and medicine and they have to have a degree of freedom and they have to be able to maintain relationships with one another. And the other complaint is that rights are very antagonistic because they're about claims against other people or they pr- provoke individualism. And I think all of those are kind of misguided. It's, you can't have a right without, without outside of a political community. You know, can't have it operationalized. You can't have it in legal force. It's, they're all about how we regulate our relationships when things go wrong, about what we owe to one another as our, a minimum standard. They're not supposed to be, we just need rights and that's the whole of life. And it would be lovely to not live in a world where we needed them, where we're all perfectly good individuals and we had a superabundance of goods and everyone could have what they want yeah or a communist utopia right but we don't have those things we don't have everyone having the same interests and i don't think we have a will we don't have a superabundance of goods yet it'd be lovely if we did and people aren't perfect so we need some way of thinking about claims and in cases of some kind of degree of scarcity where people are competing for things. I mean, we need a minimum moral standard and that's what rights are for.
2: That's really wonderfully said, beautifully said. If if habitat rights were to be added to this kind of you know menu of rights that we have available to us and that animals have available to them, because I, I would assume that some humans would also have claims to particular habitat rights. Some human groups definitely have specific kind of environmental attachments. But if habitat rights, so now distinct animals have habitat rights. They rely on these habitats to live and to thrive. Would this only come into play, early on I put forward kind of a corporation coming into an environment that's impacting specific animals' habitat rights. What would happen in the case of, let's say, conflict between different animals? Would this be, you know, and and I think this is maybe particularly pertinent when thinking about invasive species, for example, who maybe didn't choose to move to a different environment but now find themselves in an environment. Is this where habitat rights would become, I mean, I could see how it could be employed in in really interesting ways in trying to think about the rights of, let's say, indigenous or native species and an invasive species.
1: Yeah, I mean, these are really tricky problems and I, I haven't I can't claim to have tried to solve all of them, but it, it I mean you might you might think let's say we have someone whose whose job it is to access the trustee the, the war the, the ward over this habitat, and an invasive species comes in, they might have a duty to try and preserve that habitat because those animals that live there need it to live any kind of good life, perhaps those animals that come in don't need it, maybe they could go and eat somewhere else then you can see how a ward might have a duty to try and carry out measures to attract those animals to somewhere else or to step in. And I mean, let's say a swarm of locusts comes in and eats all of the vegetation and now the animals have got nothing to eat. The ward might use the resources they've granted. Perhaps they've rented out the land to some people to chop some logs down or do some mineral mining or something like that. They could use those resources to then provide emergency food relief. Uh, or something like that to the existing population
2: but I'm assuming these habitat rights wouldn't necessarily give the right to, let's say, kill this invasive species because that animal's right to life would supersede the habitat like and I guess this is where, where it gets really tricky where you need kind of mediators and stuff, but I can see now why like a habitat right is it could be used to mediate not only relations between humans and animals, but also some of these really thorny questions that emerge between animals.
1: Yeah, and and, and unfortunately, ethics is hard. (laughs) So so solving these kind of problems has to be done almost on a case-by-case basis. And it needs careful thought, careful consideration. I mean, we do the same for humans, though. We do, when we've got legal claims that are interfering with each other, we do balancing, legal balancing between the competing rights we think about the strength of a claim the importance of particular rights some rights are likely to carry more weight than others right so we i have a right to to bodily integrity and someone else has a right to life but you know they're not necessarily always equal right? it's worse for someone to be killed than for me to lose my thumb those kind of balancing acts can be done but yeah they're not easy and they, it isn't always going to be possible to solve those cases it, you know it might be cases where we You know, a a trustee says, this is an irresolvable problem. There's no good solution. We're just going to try and get the least worst.
2: But at the very least, habitat rights would give us the space to talk about it as an existing problem and to give us the language to think through it. Whereas now I think far too often, I mean, it's not to say that I think these issues, particularly with invasive species, I think there are a lot of people doing a lot of this hard work. But the idea that there's this, this, thing that's attached to all animals that when they are in your territory or a specific territory, they have it. It's part of, it follows them, that that it makes any action more complicated. And and I think that the slowing down of these actions is possibly a good thing because the speed with which we, I think, kill, a, there's a biosecurity threat and there's a new virus. So let's just, you know, kill off all the wild ducks in this area. You know, I think if if they had rights that just wouldn't be an option
1: yeah you can't you have to you have to try the non <laughs> murderous options first you have to think i mean maybe we have a right to self defense but we you know that has to be a last resort killing has to be the last resort not the first resort and and so yeah if this you know there's a duck with a disease that might threaten us we've got a range of options we might choose beforehand vaccinating ducks vaccinating ourselves those kind of things
2: all right well this is really interesting and i can definitely see now just with the you know the conversation about habitat rights how yeah like i mean we started this conversation with speaking about moral imagination and i can see even just in having a new concept to think with how my own possibilities and how things could politically be arranged changes right so Thank you so much for that. Before we say goodbye, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? And if folks are interested in your work, where they could get in touch with you?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I've got a a profile on the University of Leicester's website. So if you just look for Steve Cook, the University of Leicester, you'll find me in my profile. I'm currently trying to work on a a book that I've been working on for a very long time, unsuccessfully, on uh, animal rights activism. So this is the thing that started me off in my journey in the first place, and I'm still working on it trying to think of all those problems that we have as animal rights activists. So the question of whether we ought to break into laboratories and rescue non-human animals, what sort of constraints ought to guide our actions around the use of force, who are legitimate targets for animal rights activism, what kind of things can we do in pursuit of those good ends, And, and other questions like how do we live our lives amongst communities of people who have really opposing moral views to us that we find incredibly troubling can we form friendships with those people should we form friendships what should be the limits of who we can be friends with how should we blame people for acting in communities where harming animals is the norm are they are they blameworthy for not thinking about their actions those those all of those kind of questions that puzzle me I'm, I'm trying to write a book for to, to help solve them. I'm not going to promise to solve them because that's too difficult, but uh, I'm going to try to solve some of those.
2: Well, it sounds fantastic. As I think, as anyone who is vegan can attest to, it's it's a it's a it's a weird world when you you know you love people and they're the closest people to you in all of the world, but they participate in something that you find probably is one of the most egregious things on your kind of list of things that exist in the world. And it's interesting how we can have both of these. I mean, of course you love these people. Like, of course you do. They're your people. And we see them as complicated full beings. Right. But but, I mean, for me, at least it also, sorry, now I'm like giving you my confession to your latest research project. Let me weigh in on your, but I'm going to give you my two cents piece and then I'll let you go. I promise. Like it's given me some more compassion in some regards for thinking through other really egregious historical events or you know when we look at kind of things that have happened in history or we look at something that's happening in a geography further away from us and we think how on earth could people do that or how on earth could people condone this and it's I don't know it's given me some kind of semblance of an understanding of how we can be part of really awful things and not see it.
1: Yeah, it's really alienating but I, 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 t- I go back to the idea of moral progress and the work of Michelle Moody Adams in that she talks about this problem, of seemingly good people doing terrible things because it's the norm and it's hard to imagine a different world in those circumstances. And that ought to lead us to a sort of more forgiving way of thinking about our, our fellow citizens as well.
2: Yeah, and of ourselves. Chances are we're doing something that's absolutely awful that we can't see.
1: Well, most of us who are vegan now probably weren't always vegan, so...
2: Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, no, no one is. Anyway, it sounds like really fascinating and interesting work. Thank you so much for being with me on the show today. I really, I really appreciated talking to you.
1: Pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
2: Hi, Virginia. Welcome back to the animal highlight. Hi, good to be back here. Thank you. I know that you've got a really interesting animal for us to speak about today, so I'm looking forward to jumping into it. But
0: you've been really busy lately. You've been going to all sorts of conferences and stuff. I don't know how you do it. I'm not sure I'd recommend it, but I did, I did have a fantastic time at Uncommon Worlds 3 in Aulu in Finland last week, or the week before. I'm losing track of time. So, so that was a great chance to meet people talking about animal studies. Yeah, it's, an, it's incredible. I was also at a conference about two
2: weeks ago, on Veterinary Ethics, and I think it's always, it's always interesting. And that conference was really quite great because I, for the first time I wasn't presenting. So it was nice to actually just attend and listen to what other folks were saying. But it's really lovely to have you back on, on the show and I'm looking forward
0: to your animal highlights. So who are we focusing on today? Well, this, this is actually going to focus on, I really enjoyed writing this one or thinking about this one. It's a red-tailed hawk called Pale male, and i I found out about him actually from reading Hal Herzog's book. Some we love, some we eat, some we hate. I've probably got those in the wrong order, but that's what we're talking about. So I shall, I shall get started. In this episode of the Animal Turn, Steve Cook was saying that people should recognise animals as individuals, worthy of concern for their own sake. This is important to upholding their rights, rather than simply thinking of them as members of groups or species. Worthy of concern. When we recognise animals as individual beings who matter for their own sake, we recognise that they can and indeed should have rights, including habitat rights. Your conversation with Steve got me thinking about a red tailed hawk in New York City known as Pale Male. Pale Male has an interesting story. He was recognised in the city as an individual worthy of concern and who had a claim to his urban space. Before telling you about pale male, let me tell you a little bit about red-tailed hawks. Red-tailed hawks are one of the largest and commonest birds of prey in North America. They're somewhere between the size of a crow and a goose, weighing between one and one and a half kilograms, and with a wingspan of over a metre. They have a really distinctive, long, rasping call, and films often mistakenly use this when they're showing bald eagles. Red-tailed hawks are generalists and opportunists, and this makes them capable of adapting to almost any habitat, which is why these apex predators can thrive in urban settings. Pale-male did exactly that in New York City. Pale-male, so named for his light colouring, was first seen as a young hawk in Central Park in 1991, and he went about setting up a nest on the ledge of a fancy apartment building that bordered the park. His distinctive colouring and his choice of nest site made him easily recognisable to the human inhabitants of the city. Interest in pale male started with the bird enthusiasts who watched him, the other red-tailed hawks, and the other birds in and near Central Park. But because of the unusual location of his nest, interest in pale male spread beyond dedicated bird watchers, and other people in the city started to pay attention to him, taking an interest in him as an individual, as pale male, not as a red-tailed hawk. We don't often practice this kind of individualization with wild or liminal animals. People might have thought of pale male as just another one of the red-tailed hawks and other birds who live in Central Park, or they might just have thought of him as a red-tailed hawk more generally. But they didn't. They thought of him as pale male. And pale male became something of a celebrity. He was the subject of hundreds of newspaper articles, three books, and an award-winning documentary called The Legend of Pale Mail. A lot of this interest was because of where Pale Male had built his nest. It wasn't just that he'd built his nest on an apartment building rather than in a tree in Central Park. The apartment building he'd chosen was on the Upper East Side, some of New York's most expensive real estate. And the building, like many others, was covered in anti bird spikes, which, in, which were intended to stop birds roosting and nesting on them. As Pale Mail proved, this kind of hostile architecture doesn't necessarily work. In fact, other birds have even started building their nests from anti bird spikes. At first, people left Pale Mail's nest alone, but in 2004, it and the anti bird spikes, which had accommodated rather than deterred it, were removed. Perhaps because people had recognised Pale male as an individual, they were intensely concerned for his welfare. Residents of the building and New Yorkers generally rallied in protest at the removal, calling it heartless and demanding that the nest be reinstated. And this brings us really well to what Steve was saying in your conversation. Steve suggests that both humans and animals need to have their interests respected to live a good life. And if animals need habitats to live a good life, then they should have rights to those habitats. Pillmill needed his nest to live a good life, to fulfill his potential to hatch and rear chicks. Red tailed hawks like pale male use the same nest with the same partner for many years. Red tailed hawks have impressive courtship rituals which involve the male flying high and then plummeting down to the female. Sometimes the pair of birds will lock talons in mid-air and spiral towards the ground before pulling up and then perching to preen each other. So when his nest was removed, pale male's ability or his right to raise chicks was violated. And because we can think of his nest as his property, we could also say that his property rights had been violated. He had habitat rights and property rights, even if his habitat was somewhere different from what we might expect, and even if his property was somewhat different from from what we might expect. In response to the protests, and rather ironically, the anti-bird spikes that Henanit had enabled Payamel to build his nest in the first place were reinstalled. He and his mate Lola quickly rebuilt their nests, Unfortunately, though, the pair were unsuccessful in hatching eggs. One theory is that the way the new nest was built around and among the new anti-bird spikes might have prevented the hawks from being able to turn their eggs during the incubation period, meaning that the chicks didn't grow to hatch. It's not certain that this was the case, but that's the theory, and some of the spikes were removed. Sadly, despite this, Hale-Mail and Lola never succeeded in hatching any eggs together after their original nest was removed. After Lola's death in 2010, however, pale male found new mates and did successfully hatch chicks in the rebuilt nest, fathering over 30 chicks during his lifetime. When he died in 2023, pale male was thought to be 33. This is very old for a red-tailed hawk. The average lifespan of wild red-tailed hawks is six or seven, although others have been recorded as living into their late twenties. Over the course of his long life, Pale Mill captured the imagination of New Yorkers and made them think seriously about how humans can live alongside other species in cities. Most recent data suggests that there are about 15 pairs of red-tailed hawks nesting in Manhattan and the population continues to grow. Wow, what an incredible story.
2: I think it is fascinating how people get attached to particular individuals and I think individuals help to you know, even let's say you have an animal who escapes from a slaughterhouse truck or or who's found running you know through a city. somehow people get attached to that particular animal there's There's something about recognizing an individual's story that really helps people to i think empathize and and notice that something has gone awry right what do you What do you think Do you
0: think pale male did live to be thirty three I know that this is a bone of some contention. Oh, yeah, this is this is something that I didn't actually manage to fit in there. But people are surprised that this one bird could have lived so long. I mean, it, it's not impossible, but it is unlikely. So they think maybe what happened was there was actually more than one hawk who had the same distinctive colouring, who kept using, or so more than one hawk were using the same nest, and people just assumed it was the same hawk all along. I mean, I like to think it was one bird. And I think... I think that's what people like to think. We like to believe in this one bird coming to the same nest and, and living a really long time and and forming, sort of forming a relationship with people or people forming a relationship with it, or him rather. And it, you're right, it is important the way that one individual animal can kind of open our eyes to things that we manage to keep our eyes closed to when we just think about animals as groups or collectives. It's interesting, though, because I think somehow
2: we're able to privilege the individual's experience while at the same time like disavowing the collective. Do you know what I mean? Like, So everyone's concerned with pale male,
0: but what about all the other red-tailed hawks? When you raise awareness as an individual, it can lead to concern for the species as a whole. That's why in conservation... Ambassador species, or sorry, ambassador animals are so important. There's the kakapo in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is a really endangered, nocturnal, flightless parrot. And there's a bird called Sirocco, who is an absolute dead loss for the conservation breeding programme. But he's such a cool bird that he's a really important ambassador for the species. And people care so much. I mean, they care about the kakapo generally. but Sirocco, is such a cool bird that he really helps people care about the kakapo. Yeah, it's 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 definitely interesting to to think about. Anyway,
2: that was really interesting. I didn't know about pale male before you started speaking about him, and I, I just know that. New York has some of the highest I think it's also peregrine falcons one of the highest populations of peregrine falcons don't quote me on that and I I say this far too often on the podcast but I'm pretty certain I saw peregrine falcon up in Kingston actually while studying I was sitting at my desk and all of a sudden I realized out of the corner of my eye something was there and I look up and there's a peregrine falcon just like standing staring at me I was like oh well there you go but yeah I think peregrine falcons do exceedingly well in cities a lot of birds of prey are, are finding a
0: way, right? They do. They. This is the interesting thing. Our Our urban areas are actually providing really good niches for some Some raptors, like peregrines, nest on cliffs often. So things like cathedrals and churches are basically man made cliffs. And that's
2: fascinating. All right. Well, thank you so much, Virginia, for for joining me again on the animal highlight. thank you as always to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple for sponsoring this podcast, to Jeremy John for the logo and Gordon Clark for the bed music. Thank you to Christian Mentz for editing this episode. Thank you also goes to Virginia Thomas for her work on the animal Highlight. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hertenfelder.
0: For more great iRule podcasts, visit iRulePod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D dot com. (sighs)